So, how many of you have been coming to the worship zone in the mornings? Fantastic. We haven't checked that out yet. It's uh, every morning uh, at uh, 10 to 11.15 in this venue. And we're going into a lot of these subjects in quite a lot of depth, the different things about why we worship, how we worship. So, feel free to check that out tomorrow morning if, you, uh, if you're awake. If not, then don't. But um, if you're up and about, why not come? Uh, today is uh, called A Practical Guide to Worship Leading. So, it would be useful for me to know what sort of people you are. Um, I know there's a lot that we could go into there. Um, but who is involved in sort of their music team, choosing songs, playing in a band? Ooh, wow, lots of people. Anybody here who is in charge of leading a church but isn't musical? Anybody here who just thought they'd come for the fun of it, which is completely fine? Awesome. Which category did I miss? Anybody not fit into any of those categories? It's completely fine. We are postmodern after all, so your category is your own of your choice. Um, I've been thinking a lot about worship over the last couple of years, and the main place I've been uh, sort of exploring those themes has been on my blog. Um, I'm a bit of a geek, so I love um, all things Apple, all things online. Um, and I started a website to explore a lot of the different things that we will be talking about today in worship. I love discussion. So I'm actually going to base today on four different blog posts that I've written over the last couple of years. Um, and I'm going to chop the, the session into four bits. And we're going to look at four different uh, sort of areas of worship. I could, I could have done a very, very typical seminar, the ones that you've probably already all been to, you know, where people tell their story and then they talk about set lists and all the stuff that basically you've probably heard before. So I thought I'd switch it up a bit, um, but I want to make sure you get what you want out of this. So at any point, um, at the end of each section, I'll, it's not really any point, is it? That was a lie. I said that, and then I went, I didn't mean that. Um, I take that back. Not at any point, but um, multiple points throughout the afternoon. I'll ask you in the next hour when you want to ask questions. <laughs> Caught myself out there. <coughs> so um, the first bit of the... Uh, today is going to look at 10 steps to ruin your worship leading ministry. So I thought, you know, why be positive when you can be negative? Um, and my hope is that as we look at these different sections, you will, um, things will come to mind that you want to deal with, the reasons that you came here today. So after each section, I'll, I'll throw it open for questions and um, we'll just kind of take them as, you know, as they come. Don't, it doesn't have to be relevant to that section. So 10 easy steps to ruin your worship leading ministry. Please take notes because... You know, why, why succeed when you could fail? Um, <clears throat> so these are, the, these are the ways to do this. Step one, only ever sing your own songs. <laughs> Who cares if your songs are so artsy and cutting edge that no one can understand them? People need to be stretched, don't they? You feel that your platform is meant to showcase your material, so you do your own tunes back to back every week. Your favorite bands are from Iceland, so you sing a few of them in Icelandic. Just to be really cutting edge, people stare at you blankly, but you assume they are just lost in the Lord and are enraptured with the wonder of his presence. <laughs> Step two, use your church musician volunteers to make you look good. <laughs> your church musicians basically are minions. They are your backing band. They're only there to make you sound smoking, aren't they? You are dictatorial about how you want everything played, and heaven forbid if anyone should try and do anything you didn't ask for. But they're there to serve you, right? You should give them all the bad jobs. Really, they should learn humility through setting up the PA system and going on your Starbucks run. Or they should be putting the chairs away at the end of the service. You'll be busy, of course, as you have fans to greet. <laughs> Step number three, become a local celebrity. Hide in green rooms and shroud yourself in mystery. Instead of being approachable and friendly, you slink around, trying to stay away from the common folk. They are such a drain after all, aren't they? You claim the band room as your own personal green room, filling it with your clothes, hair products, and your 50 spare instruments. You start wearing sunglasses indoors. <laughs> when church members recognize you at the grocery store, you give them a humble, yes, it's me, folks, look. And you walk up to offer a simple autograph on their grocery list. <laughs> Step number four, talk badly about your senior pastor at every opportunity. You see your pastor is the person eclipsing your celebrity. He is the big cheese, but surely you deserve that limelight. So you drop negative thoughts about him into everyone's ears. 
At night, you dream about making the congregation choose between you and him. You walk out, leading everyone behind you like the Pied Piper, and you start a new church where you will be the one and only Grand Fromage. Step five, argue that the sermon should be cut to five minutes so that you can sing for an hour and a half. (laughs) Every week, you insist that people are totally wanting to just keep worshipping. Everybody wants more songs. They're always telling you this. You purposefully ignore your pastor's, please stop now, hand gestures. You let your sets get longer and longer. When it comes to a sit-down argument with your pastor, you say, the Holy Spirit keeps telling you to keep singing, and that the people are like a tidal wave, and you are just going with the flow. You accuse him of quenching the spirit and storm out, combing your rock star hair as you leave. Step number six to ruining your worship ministry. Every week, totally change your song list after you've given it to the pastor and the lyric projection team and the sign language team and the band. You don't see any need to be a team player. After all, aren't the others there to just support you? Aren't you, Moses, going up the proverbial mountain, bringing down the worship of the Lord? Despite the fact that the lyric projection team need to know what songs to load into their computers, and despite the fact that the sign language team need to prepare their signing lyrics, you want to be spontaneous, as that's always more spirit-led than planning, right? When confronted, you argue that planning constrains the Holy Spirit and grieves his heart. Freedom means no planning. So what if deaf people can't join in and no one has any words? After all, you are moving in your prophetic gifting, aren't you? (laughs) Step number seven. Begin speaking in the weird accent of whichever worship leader you most look up to. Whether you're an English worship leader who loves American music or vice versa, begin to subtly adopt some of their pronunciations when you sing, perhaps even when you speak, perhaps even at the grocery store in that aforementioned moment. This somehow makes you more legit and it adds to your mystique. People at the petrol station begin to ask you, where are you from? And you enjoy the sense of wonder that you create. Perhaps you even pretend that you are from that other country when meeting strangers. After all, you're way too big to be constrained by your little town, aren't you, Cobber? <laughs> Number eight, squash anyone who joins your church or team who might be more gifted than you. <laughs> you survey the team for anyone showing any signs of talent and instantly find them a new role, like on the coffee team or the floor sweeping team. If anyone joins the church with a clear gifting in worship leading, you give them the toughest audition ever. And then you go to the pastor with a sad expression of deep pastoral concern and you say, oh, I love that person. I love their talent, but what about their heart? I just sense the spirit saying there are some deep character issues. You ensure they never get to lead and your evil rule of terror continues. (laughs) Step number nine, go to worship conferences like Spring Harvest and then come back and tell your local church they need to change everything. You are a worship conference junkie. You book two years in advance for all your favourite events and always get a front row seat. Not looking at anyone. (laughs) Photos of you and every well-known worship leader are pinned up in your little band room and you take copious notes, then come back and announce that everything everybody's doing is wrong. You think to yourself, poor clueless people, if only they'd been at Conference Awesomeness 2012, then they would understand what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. Please keep coming to Spring Harvest. Step 10, the final 10. Decide not to have a plan for what to do when you're too old to lead worship. You decide that you want to be a worship leader for the rest of your working life. And you ignore the thought that anyone younger should ever be involved. You see them as a threat. They might be current and hip, but you decide they are evil and to be stopped. Anybody coming in with a new form of music, you crush. You bring them over to your side and get them to wear old slippers and say that they have no place. (laughs) You tell the church that you don't believe in the next generation. You invent a new service and siphon them off into a small room. Your church continues forever until you all die. The end. (laughs) So 10 steps, and I know they're uh, very tongue-in-cheek, but I definitely relate to a lot of those. Uh, And I definitely, when I wrote them, was kind of writing them slightly out of a pointing the finger at me going, I really do do so many of these things. Um, The first one, singing our own songs. It's tricky if you are a songwriter, and uh, I know some of us are. If you really believe in your own material and you connect with it on a deep level, you want to use it because it sort of came out of your heart and it's your most, I guess, your most pure expression of how you feel about God. So it is difficult sometimes not to overuse your own songs. 
But that's a key one, isn't it? Um, you ask people what they think of events like this. Uh, often people will say, oh, so-and-so is a good worship leader, but they all sing songs we don't know. Has anybody ever been to an event and felt that way? Um, you go to a conference and you just want to join in, but the worship team just aren't singing songs that everybody knows. Um, number two, using your church musicians to making you look good, uh, make you look good. That's, that's actually um, a very rare thing. I don't find many worship directors or leaders that do that, but um, sometimes it is hard for us to remember that we're there to serve our volunteers as much as they're there to serve our vision. It's our signing up to fulfill a role in the team that we're kind of arranging, but then at the same time, they are giving of their time and energy, aren't they? So it's a, it's a difficult one. Uh, local celebrity, anybody here hide in green rooms and wear sunglasses indoors? Confess now, looking around, we are indoors. Um, number four, talking badly about your pastor. We've been, we've been talking about that in the worship zone in the mornings, your vicar, your minister. That's a tough one because often the relationship between church leader and worship leader is a really hard relationship. Uh, we were talking this morning a bit about personality types and how differently we can see things. And a worship leader might be coming at a service going, I need flexibility, spontaneity, I want to follow the Holy Spirit. That's what a godly approach to a service looks like. A pastor might be coming at it saying, I want to make the people feel safe. I want to have structure and boundaries and, and a well-timed service so that everything works. And he thinks, or she thinks, that's what godly approach to service planning looks like. So often we do have a breakdown, and I'm sure you guys might have some thoughts on that. Uh, number five was argue that the sermon should be cut to five minutes and that you should get an hour and a half. Timing is tricky, isn't it? Often many of us feel like we're not given enough time to do what we're trying to do. We, we have a heart for leading our congregations on a journey. We want them to go deeper in their worship experience. But that's very difficult if you only get two or three songs, especially if they're all chopped up. Anybody relate to that? You just want sort of more time and more volunteers and more equipment and you know, it's not a bad thing to want any of that. It's completely fine. Like, it's, it's a struggle, isn't it, that we have to balance what we want to achieve with the little resources that most of us have. Um, number six, changing set lists um, at the last minute. Is anybody guilty of that? Uh, it's, it's a hard one, isn't it? Like, the balance between suddenly going, oh, I really think God's saying this instead, but then remembering that the lyric team are all ready for a particular song. And if you do cater which we really value here at spring harvest we cater with sign language it's so important that everybody can participate it's really on my heart that um we don't ever make anybody feel excluded um and obviously my tongue-in-cheek joke earlier was a joke so please don't come up at the end and go you said it was funny that people couldn't join in if they can't see like i obviously didn't mean that um i'm actually always the worship leader at spring harvest that um does our disability week and we have um a week next week where we have uh, a whole bunch of things, like we do song lyrics in Braille. Um, everything's signed even more than normal. Um, we have Prospects, which is a fantastic organisation in, and uh, I have a real heart for that. So um, it is important for us to remember that even though we're being flexible to the Holy Spirit, people are depending on our plan to be able to engage. Seven, begin speaking in weird accents. I'm a bit of a funny one to talk about that because I lived in America for eight years, and if you actually do go on my blog and watch some of my videos, I developed a very odd accent. So, um, ironic. <laughs> but I've lost it, I hope now. Number eight, squash anyone who joins your church who might be more gifted than you. That is a scary one, isn't it? When people show up in our churches and they're actually quite good, if our identities become a little bit too wrapped up in what we do. And there's a healthy amount of identity, isn't there? Knowing who we are and where our place is in the church. But sometimes it can get a bit sensitive, maybe more sensitive than it needs to. Um, and I've, I've definitely over the years had to learn to let go of what doing this stuff means to me, to actually be willing to walk away from it. Uh, like this week, I'm not actually leading any worship across the event because um, I chose to just do one week this year rather than two. So I'm leading next week, but this week I'm just doing a few seminars and watching Pete James do an amazing job. And it's really good to not be that person because if you're always that person, it can become a little bit too important. And then if you ever get any of it taken away for any reason, you could have an almighty meltdown. We don't want that, do we? <coughs> Number nine, um, going back from events, telling your church everything needs to change. It's funny that we're talking about this right now. Uh, but I guess there's a, there's a degree of sensitivity needed, isn't there, when we go back home after something like Spring Harvest, where we have got together with loads of really inspiring people that the conversations you guys are having throughout sight, I eavesdrop on some of them as I walk past and 
you're talking about fantastic stuff. Like at the end of the worship zone, I hear some of the conversations and the things you guys are talking about are great. And then you go back home often to congregations who don't really think along those lines because that's not their particular area of interest. Um, We can't expect our home crowd to be into all the same things we are, can we? Not in quite the same way. So I guess it's about going home with ideas, but also with a bucket load of grace to say, I love you and the way you do things, but how about this? And knowing the right spirit in which to offer the stuff that we're talking about here. Um, Final point, and this one's a difficult one. um, Decide not to have a plan for what to do when you might be too old to lead worship. Now that is, I put that in there basically um, to kind of stir up discussion because I don't really think that that's accurate. I don't actually agree with that. Um, But there's definitely a kind of wave of churches that are moving on older people and bringing in younger people. And I think we really need to stop that in its tracks and say, what are we doing here? Uh, Why why are we falling into the rut of thinking that somebody has to be younger to be in charge of the music? What about the wisdom that comes with many years of service? What about the seasoned eldership of people that have seen so many trends come and go? And many of you in this room will have seen so many different songwriters kind of rise to prominence and everybody's singing their stuff and then then it's someone else and someone else and bands and CDs. You've got all that hindsight and you need to be able to bring that to your churches. All of us of any age to stay musically somewhat up to date. I think that's the only responsibility and I find it difficult because I'm, you know, always on the go. I don't really spend very much time listening to music anymore and I've had to change that to make sure... I'm still current with, you know, what's going on. Like, And chart music isn't everybody's favourite. I like listening to classic FM when I'm working. So, you know, I put myself in the same category as anyone here who's, you know, feeling like they're not totally in touch with where music's at. But we do need to sort of know what our favourite music is and then what everyone else is listening to. If you're only into top 40 charts and you're like, you know, 18, you also need probably to turn on classic FM every now and then and think about, what about people in my church that love choral music? Or what about classical music? You know, if all you do is rock band, maybe one Sunday you need to think, what would happen if I actually got a string quartet or um, some choral voices? What, what about catering backwards? No one seems to talk about that, do they? It all seems to be older people needing to cater for younger people. But there's so many younger people now in position, I think they need to be reminded to cater. Not, it's not age-specific either, because I, I actually prefer classical music. Um, And I don't really get very much of that at the churches I go to, and I would love to. So I wish the worship leaders there would cater for that as well as Coldplay and U2, which are also good, but, you know. Um, So those ten points, I know they're uh, tongue-in-cheek and some of them are a bit cheeky. um, But I'd love to know what you guys are thinking. So this is is the first quarter of uh, the seminar coming to a QA and a time. So I know that you are desperate to say things. I can tell if you're still alive. Um, I'm actually going to come to you and uh, we can all hear your questions. So anybody got any thoughts on those 10 points? I will. No, I won't do that because that could be the end of my life because um, there aren't any stairs over there. Raise your hand one more time. Great. Do, 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 do. Did you ever used to watch Challenge Annika? <laughs> Here we go. Hi, yes, we see the importance of um, role models within worship teams, the young and the old, um, but also I kind of sense the, the relationship, of building relationship with um, with your leadership team and your pastors. How do you work along with that to work in a conjunctive, if that's a word, that's quite complicated, doesn't it? Um, how to work with the leadership and pastors of the team, because sometimes we find in some church traditions, the pastors or the vicars or church leaders will do the worship you know and the band to sort of play along to it mm. and how do you actually release people to actually release some of the pressure off pastors and yeah many churches actually don't let their worship teams choose songs do they so that's an interesting one um and i do think it's worth us exploring what that means like if is anyone in a church where the songs are chosen for you you're in the team and they just yeah Half the time. And that's that's a whole different barrel of fish or whatever the phrase is. I'm not very good at those sort of phrases. I tend to stay away from them. Um, yeah, barrel of kettles of whatever it is. <laughs> fish are in there somewhere. Um, but if you don't even get to choose your songs, that is really tricky, isn't it? Because you might have to play something that you don't know, that you hate. 
that you can't really sing, um, the grace of the Lord be with you. <laughs> uh, it's, it's one of those things that it might be worth, if you, if you are in that situation, I think the only way to get through it is to talk to the person who does choose the songs about how you can actually gain enough of their trust to begin working with them on that. And probably stage one of that will be working with them. It's quite unusual that someone would just suddenly go, you can do it now. If they've been doing it for a while, they'll probably want to continue. And it is about trust. It's about whether or not somebody feels safe enough to say, you choose. So if you do it with them for a f- few months or a year and ask them to train you, that's that to me has seemed like the best way to transition that. Yes, madam. Can I just say something on that as a pastor? Because, you know, I've got all week to be thinking about the service and thinking about the songs. And often the people that I'm working with are busy people. And then you find, you know, there's no time to practice. There's there's no time to get everything done. And you end up on a Sunday morning feeling like it's utter chaos. And so, so while you're wanting to bring people on and delegate, then, you know, there's that responsibility on both sides for the, for the people that are choosing the songs and the musicians to, to put something together that will meet the congregation. Yeah, and I bet most song leaders, musicians, wouldn't ever see it that way. We'd think, okay, so you want to choose the songs. But actually, there could be a really pastoral reason behind it. You know, maybe the fact that most musicians are volunteers and often the church leader is employed, so there's more time. So it could actually be that the church is trying to help the worship team. But it often comes across to musicians, I think, you know, we assume the worst, don't we? And if we start assuming the best um, and actually asking our leaders why we don't get to choose, that might break down some of those barriers. That's good. Um, my wife's the minister of the church. I'm often the worship leader. I was just going to say, if there's a song that they ask you to do and you don't think you could do it, my advice is to say to them, I don't think we can do this because. So we, we have four or five different groups that play because we're blessed with lots of musicians. And if she's picked one, which our classical pianist won't be able to play, I'll say, don't think that's a good idea. But then she would want me to say, why not this one instead? So I would just suggest that you speak to your leadership and, like you say, develop trust. But don't go back and say, I don't like this one. Say, I'm not sure this one will work because of the musicians I've got or whatever. This morning as well, you gave the advice about the ministers giving out the theme for the Sundays in advance. I'm very involved with the youth worship band at our church. And the youth worship band meet with our vicar, etc., to plan the service. None of the other leaders, worship leaders, do. We have another three. So, but they don't publish out the theme. So that will be one thing we'll be taking back and getting them together, like you said this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Any kind of working together is always a really, really good idea. Kind of adds cohesion. Raise that hand one more time. Um, I was just going to say, my, my pastor and I, we meet once a month to plan four services ahead. Um, we have about an hour and a half, and we pray beforehand. And invariably, the songs we've chosen in that time, you know, three weeks later, we've been told that was a really good song, that really blessed the situation. So um, having that more time to not be in a rush, and, and then I can email everyone out the songs they need for the, for the weeks ahead, and that works really well for us. So... Are you paid or not? No, because no. often I think people feel like if they're... It's just really hard, isn't it, if you don't have any like paid-for time in your week to do this. It's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of work alongside a full-time job and doing whatever else you do. And that can be one of the tricky bits, actually. You might feel like, well, I don't have that time. And I couldn't make that time. And it's actually true. I mean, many of us can't. So I guess we just have to go with what we've got, don't we, and not worry if you don't have time, if you've got a young family or whatever other constraints we just do we do the best we can can't we but that that sort of scenario does sound ideal to me that you and your pastor could get some time together once a month or once a week or whenever um, because the more you dialogue the more trust will be built a lot of it's just about actually knowing someone as a person the more somebody knows another person you you understand each other don't you and then when 
with any friend, if troubles come, you sort of see them through the lens of, oh, but I know so-and-so, I know they didn't mean it that way. And often with church um, teams, we don't actually know each other that well. So if something bad happens, the church leader can't go, oh, well, I know so-and-so, you know, the worship leader, they're a great person, they didn't mean it like this. But if you don't actually know each other, if you haven't hung out outside of work, if you don't ever go out for a drink or have a meal, like as, you know, and if you're, adds, a, adds a no, another whole dynamic into it, if um, you're a woman and you've got a male pastor or vice versa, that can also be tricky. Um, I've found that over the years that it's been difficult to get that kind of rapport and relationship with the senior church leader who's a man because uh, the male members of our worship team would go out with it. I know this sounds very stereotypical and I apologise, but, you know, go out for a drink at the pub or watch football together. Uh, not things that I do. Um, and, and it wouldn't be appropriate, would it, for a male church leader and a single woman probably to go out for a drink or a coffee or a meal too many times. So it does add an odd dynamic. Getting to know your church leader is so important. So be creative. If if they're married, get together with the two married people that run your church, or if you're married, bring your other half, or if you're not married, then I can vouch for the fact that it's quite difficult. Um, but just do what you can to actually get some time outside of church, outside of meetings with your church leader, just to hang out and laugh together and socialize, and then your relationship will be so much stronger and trust will appear magically. It really, really will. I just felt that the um, one of the key things that came out from the lady was saying that actually that they spend time praying before they choose songs, and I just feel that the the starting point from any worship should be prayer. Yeah, brilliant. Any other burning questions? Aha, right. <laughs> Making me work for it. Dun, dun, dun. I need one of those helicopters. That's why Anna had a helicopter. Where did you go? Right. One more time, keep that hand up. Uh, sorry to be a bit controversial, but um, there's been a lot said about trust and relationship between senior leader and worship leader. We've currently, well, recently been in two situations where that relationship's broken down. And actually, more seriously, recently, my husband was actually publicly um, criticised by the senior leader on stage in front of a worship group. Any suggestions for how to deal with something like that? Yeah, it's a hard one. You're going to have to crick your necks. I'll answer it here because we've got another question up here. I do think that's a massive, massive problem. Um, there are so many reasons why that relationship can break down, and often it's actually beyond help, isn't it? Um, and I've been in a couple of those situations myself. One of them was because the person didn't really believe that women should be in ministry at all, which was interesting that they invited me to be their worship leader. Um, but... Um, it's just tricky, isn't it? You know, there's, there's things that actually can't be repaired, and it sounds like in your situation, it couldn't be repaired. And that's okay. Like, you can't make miracles happen, can you? Every relationship in our lives, can we, if, if two parties aren't willing? So in some situations, I think you do have to prayerfully consider whether you are in the right place. And leaving a church is obviously a massive deal, isn't it? But um, it's a great book I'd recommend, actually, for anybody that is dealing with this. It's called Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud. Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud. It's actually a great one for anyone involved in ministry to read. It's by a Christian, but he's also a trained psychologist. And he talks about the importance of, of having boundaries around you that protect you. Often we're taught in ministry that we can't say no to things, that we can't have a limit to the amount that we serve or give because it's for the Lord or for the church. And if we're not protecting ourselves will actually be no good for anybody else. We can we can burn out, can't we? We can run out of steam um, or just get to a place where we're so kind of ragged and, and empty that we're no good to anyone. So this book talks about how to say no in healthy ways and know where your limits are. And I would say for you, it's, it's good to actually know where your boundaries are and you say, actually, that's not an appropriate way to treat me. That's not an appropriate way to speak to me. Um, that's not, you know, it's not professional and it's not godly. Uh, or if, if you're being overworked in your job, which many people are, even if you're a volunteer, to be able to say, actually, this is too much for me. I, I know where my limits are. I'm not being selfish. I'm just being honest. Because if I overgive, I won't be any use to you or the church or anyone else. So don't feel afraid to say no. Does anybody struggle with saying no? 
probably feel pushed kind of beyond what they can give. No is an okay word as long as you say it in the right way. So, um, and the language of boundaries is actually very, very helpful. The language of having a, a sort of a healthy, a healthy, a healthy knowledge of where your limits are, because that's actually about you protecting yourself. You know the um, the scripture that says, "Guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life, and everything flows from it." If we're not guarding our hearts. We're not going to be any use to anyone. So if you ever need to say no to anyone, just talk to them in that language. And to me, it actually makes it a lot less confrontational, that you're just protecting yourself in a godly way so that you'll actually be able to make it on the marathon rather than the sprint. Is that helpful? Good. Okay, back here. Can I just add something to that? Because I've read that book, and it's really fantastic for pastoral work as well. Um, okay, um, I, how do you deal with um, adulation? You know, if people are without putting on a pink wig and sunglasses, you know, when people think you've done a fantastic job. I mean, in the past when I've been a worship leader, I, you know, people go, wow, you know, that was great. And then other people at 10 minutes later say that was really terrible. Um, but how do you sort of respond without being too smiley or... Or to looking too miserable and saying, oh, well, it's fine, thank you very much. It's just the Lord's doing. <laughs> what do you do? Yeah, it's a, it's a strange job that we do, isn't it? Because we're up the front most of the time if you're in any kind of average church. I mean, sometimes we're not up the front, are we? We're in a, you know, up the back or at the side. But most people are up the front. Raise a hand if you're sort of looked at. Um, being the focus of anyone's attention is a funny thing, isn't it? And it begins to rub off on you after a while. Um, That was fairly graceful, wasn't it? (laughs) Ish. (coughs) Didn't break any limbs. Um, Yeah, being up the front is a funny one, and it does take time, I think, to get used to it, because in the beginning, it's either terrifying or it means too much to you. Um, And we can be oversensitive, so it can sort of make or break our week if people say, that was a great worship set this week, or I really thought you did a bad job. And does anybody feel like it overshadows their week if it goes badly? I do sometimes. Um, I think um, I would say it's about knowing yourself and knowing your own brokenness and remembering who you really are because that's not exactly hard for us all, is it? To think of all the things that we aren't great at and the ways we need to love Jesus more um, and to try not to let, uh, I don't know, focus on how well you've done or how much you've blessed people become the kind of main soundtrack in your head. I guess it's all about the way we see ourselves, isn't it? If we keep an accurate view of who we are, that we're great people, that God loves us, but we fail often without his grace, we wouldn't stand a chance. You know, we're, we're just so blessed, aren't we, to actually get to know him, to be saved by him. That amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. There's an appropriate way to just be aware of our own wretchedness in the love of God. Do you know what I mean? And I think as long as we keep that theology at the forefront of our minds, that accurate sense of, of the fact that we wouldn't even get to, to know God if it weren't for his incredible sacrifice through Jesus. The more I feel like I could take or leave being up in front of people. And it's a dangerous drug, seriously. Being up in front of people is very dangerous. The more, the more people that are out there, the harder it is to not let it tweak you into a weirdo. Um, but for me, it's mostly about just really reflecting on what Jesus has done for me and, and keeping that at the forefront of the way I see myself, that... If it weren't for him, I would be utterly lost forever. And it's a complete gift, isn't it, to serve him in any way. And then making sure that you serve in other unseen areas so that you're not just a worship person. Maybe you're a a coffee person or a bookstool person or, I don't know, locking up the church every night person and that those things are part of your worship too. Well, I hope you enjoyed 10 steps to to fail. Please don't actually go home and do all those. That would be very, very sad indeed. Um, The next thing I want to look at is um, worship monsters. This was a blog I posted um, a few months ago, and I I told the story of how when I was a little girl, I had a reoccurring nightmare of this monster that would come out of nowhere, and it would chase me. And I was actually terrified. I probably was about four or five. Um, And I had these dreams for about a year. You guys are going to want to sort of cast things out of me at the end of this, I know. Um, but it was this dream about this horrible like wolf monster that would come and get me and it would chase me and I'd be running and running and running and I'd just wake up as a little girl and I'd just be covered in sweat and I'd be, oh, the monster's going to get me, mum, make it go away. And my mum had this great piece of advice. She said, right, you've been dreaming about this for a long time now. 
let's try and see if we can end the dreams. She said, next time when you fall asleep and the monster appears and it's chasing you, she said, let it catch you and see what happens. I thought, this is bad news. My mum doesn't know. This thing's like got big teeth and hair and eyes. And But I, I went to sleep and I thought, right, okay, I'm going to fall asleep but I'm just going to try and let the monster catch me because I just don't want to have this dream anymore. And so I let the monster catch me uh, and when I turned around and it caught me, it just disappeared. Uh, and I never had the dream again. And I remember thinking, how interesting that the things we can be terrified about, uh, when they actually do happen, often it can be as nothing. And we waste so much time and energy and thought processes over things that actually aren't important and aren't worthy of the, the time and energy that God's given us on this planet. We've got a limited amount of time and our minds are a precious battleground. We've got to make sure that what goes up on up there actually is good. So why, why are we so afraid? Um, and relating that to worship, there's many things that are our worship monsters. Things that we are afraid of that actually aren't the end of the world and can cripple us and can take away our confidence. They can distract us when we're preparing, when we're leading. Uh, and if we actually face these things head on and give them a good old look in the light of day, we can realize that they're not actually that scary. Uh, here are some common worship monsters. See if these have been lurking under your bed lately. Fear of what your congregation really think of you. Fear of what your church leader thinks about you. Fear about whether you sound good enough. Fear about whether you look right. Fear of getting it wrong, singing off key, messing up a piece of music. Fear of whether you're too young or too old. Wondering whether your songs, if you write any, are good enough or whether they'll crash and burn. Fear of being more organised and feeling locked down and constrained. Or the other extreme, fear of stepping out in spontaneity, wanting to, but just being terrified that if you don't have a strict plan, that everything will crash and burn. Maybe you're afraid about trying a new instrument. Possibly you are a, vo a voice leader and you want to start playing piano or guitar, but what if it all goes horrendously wrong? Maybe you're thinking about moving from songbooks to a screen, but you're worried. Will it throw people? Will people miss the books? What happens if the word projection person is an idiot? <laughs> about fear about involving more people in the worship team. Maybe you've got a strong team of people, two or three, four people that play regularly. And then there's some people on the fringes. You're thinking, should we give them a go? What if it all goes wrong? What if it's a disaster? What if they're not ready? How do we know that? Another common worship monster is fear of having to ask people to step down for a while. There's often people in our churches that just need to take a bit of a break. Maybe they're volunteers that have been serving for a long time and uh, maybe they just need to rest for a bit and you're terrified to break that news. Or maybe there's someone who just isn't working as a team. Maybe it's a, a wind instrument player who just sees every opportunity as a time to solo or a drummer who can't keep time yet. And you're just terrified to have to break the news. Do you struggle with any of those fears? As you do, what is it that keeps you up at night? Is it, is it any of those? Is it something different? What, what stops you? Like if you, if you could be totally carefree, what would it be that you're sort of throwing off and getting rid of? Is it general nerves about being up the front in front of people? Are you nervous about your voice, the team, how it all works? I'm going to throw this open for questions again. What are your worship monsters raise a hand this is a brave one to share about so if no one has any then we'll move on but anybody got any monsters ah i see now how on earth am i going to get there <laughs> this is my worship monster fear of not being able to get to the right person um on my youth group we did a few events we went around different churches um, our biggest phobia, as well as not, not staying in tune, was our sound system. We hired in a sound system, and it broke down ourselves. Um, it broke down every time we used it. Um, we did five different dates, and every time it stopped. Um, then we just gave up and got our own. Um, and our whole band together, we're all quite young, um, all late teens now. Um, and we have a problem that we all have tuning issues sometimes. Um, everybody has it, but we had like one event where one song we all horrendously got wrong. 
Um, and since then, we've not quite sorted ourselves out, but it's, I think everybody has that at one point, but yeah. So yeah, two common worship monsters, fear of the sound system, fear of whether the techie is actually um, an alien and is gonna make you sound terrible. And then fear of tuning. Anybody get afraid about their tuning? I'm always constantly tuning my guitar because I hate the thought of it being out of tune. Anyone else got any worship monsters that they want to confess? Yep. Yeah, on Twitter. Um, um, I think probably my fear would be um, when, when no one really responds. So you start off with a couple of quiet ones thinking this will get people involved and then no one really seems to do anything so you pick it up with a bigger kind of a get the drums in and, and nothing really happens. And um, I think that happened to me one of the first times I led and that's always my biggest fear is to how to deal with that. I don't really know how to deal with that. Yeah, that, that sea of blank faces gazing at you, <laughs> drooling. Um, yeah, no, I know that one quite well. Um, better than I should probably. That is a terrifying thing, isn't it? What do you do if people aren't engaging? Do you move on? Do you give up? I think it's one of those things where you, you have to develop a poker face when no one can actually tell that you're panicking. <laughs> it's probably my best advice. Um, and then try and figure out afterwards what it was that didn't connect. And even ask people, if you know the congregation, ask them, what did you feel like today? Often people are having an amazing experience with God and their faces completely belie that. I've had people walk up to me at the end of worship sets and go, oh, I met the Lord. And I'm thinking, you were the one with the vacant eyes and the drool coming out of your mouth. You could have at least pretended to look like you were meeting the Lord. Um, but, you know, you selfish worship people. Selfish. Anybody else? A couple more monsters? Hi. Um, I'm a foreigner. And when I speak in the mic in front of the church, all English goes out of my head. I feel that I cannot express myself in the way it's um, acceptable and it's understandable to people. I'm aware of my accent. I'm aware of the words that I might be coming out of my mouth or not. Uh, wrong sentence structure. And it, I've, I've learned to deal with it. And I know God understands me, which is wonderful. <laughs> That's what counts in a way. But uh, as, as we are there to facilitate worship, you know, it's, it's good to know that what you're trying to come put across comes across and that people understand and can follow where you want to lead them. So, yes, it's something that I have lost sleep over, I'm afraid. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, one more worship monster back here. To comment on that one, I'm actually English and I have the same fears, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Lots of monsters in the room, but the like I was saying earlier, in my nightmare when I was a little girl, um, and my mum said to just face that monster... And, and watch it disappear. They really do, honestly. If you, even naming fears can actually take away some of their power. And I'm not talking about kind of name it and claim it kooky stuff. But if you just start thinking, you know, it's like, what's the worst that could happen? You know, you forget your words. Probably the people love you, don't they? Because they're your church, you know. Um, we start naming these things, speaking them out and going, actually, that wouldn't be the end of the world, would it? And giving each other permission, like in your team, if you lead a team or you lead volunteers, telling them, you know, it's, it's okay if you're out of tune sometimes. I'd rather you weren't. Um, asking them what their monsters are, figuring out what makes them afraid. Because often fear makes us do a worse job, doesn't it? It holds us back. So we start identifying each other's fears and kind of pulling off that, um, that kind of monster and finding inside that it's just a cuddly little teddy bear. Be terrified about being up in front of people. I was the shyest person in my youth group. And my youth leader said that if I was called to lead worship, anybody could be. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> thought, thanks a lot. <clears throat> well, uh, we're running out of time a bit here, um, but I don't want to uh, skip over too much of this. One thing I want to touch on is um, the feminization of worship. This is a blog I did, um, and I'm bouncing around on different subjects here because, um, like I said at the beginning, I don't just want to give you a, an average, normal worship leading seminar that you've all heard before because I know many of you have come to these kind of things before so um, spend the last little bit of uh, today looking at the feminization of worship now um, there's been a big debate especially on social media is anybody into Twitter Facebook blogs a few of you um, there's been lots of discussions in that forum and in and others in church newspapers and um, a lot of uh, Christian books talking about whether the church has become a place that is not suitable for men 
whether or not worship itself has become so slushy that real men wouldn't want to participate. And I get into a lot of these debates uh, with people because there's a lot of uh, people, especially in America, that are selling a very kind of macho Christianity at the moment. There's lots of books being written in America saying, we need these men to come back into the churches and they're not in your churches because it's all about Jesus is my girlfriend and we're, you know, schmaltzing around with our songs and our crying. And, and I feel very passionately that that's not true. And I get the sense that you guys do too, that worship is actually a very brave um, and uh, a very appropriate thing for both men and women to do. So when you think about the kind of songs you sing in church, um, it's worth bearing that in mind. We do want to make it a place where men and women can both join in, don't we? Uh, we don't want to kind of get into, I don't know, such a... Oh, let me not put words in your mouth. Some people would say that it's difficult for men to say, uh, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. Jesus, you're beautiful. I am the bride of Christ. Things like that. Um, I think that's very biblical. In the same way that women would have to say, I'm a son, I'm an heir. It kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? Um, I always look at David when I think about this. David was a man's man. You know, he's uh, out looking after sheep. He, he killed bears and lions, didn't he? And yet he wrote the book of Psalms. And it's a beautiful, beautiful book where he pours out his heart. Um, David also didn't ever get feedback on his microphone because they weren't invented yet. Um, but David was very much a man's man, living outside, shepherding. You know, it was a dangerous job. And uh, a lot of people failed to remember that that was actually a very kind of muscular task, protecting animals. Um, and I think it's interesting that he was a man who was very in touch with his own heart. Um, I don't know about the demographic on your worship team. Is it mainly men or mainly women? Raise a hand if it's mainly women. Raise a hand if it's mainly men. About equal, that's fantastic. Um, I'm curious to know your thoughts on whether you think men in your church find it difficult to sing. Men often find singing a bit of a weird thing, I've been told. But you look at guys at a football match, there's no problems. I don't support a team, so that was my you know, generic all, all one-size-fits-alls team song. Uh, my dad supports Manchester United, so I guess that would be, you know, I knew that would, yeah. Um, so in, in terms of involving men in your worship team, it's, it's clearly not a problem for many people here, but I'd love to know what you would say to people who, who make those kind of accusations that the church has become effeminate. Uh, one of my favorite verses is that Jesus wept. Jesus is our ultimate role model, isn't he? Um, does anybody here have any thoughts on that that you think... Uh, the church has become too effeminate, that worship is difficult for men. Do you think some of the lyrics that are being written at the moment are too slushy or too love-oriented for you know, your non-Christian mates to come in and sing? Do you think it's not relevant? What do you think? Well, nearly died. <laughs> well, when I'm choosing songs, I'll, I'll have, say, a, like an early 80s vineyard-style We Love Jesus song, but maybe straight after the sermon or the prayers and we'll have big anthems at the start and the end uh, which the men can get in on and then they don't mind so much if there's a, a slower, softer one in the middle. Uh, always make sure it's got lots of biblical truth and uh, things that people can respond to though. But yeah, maybe a, a mix rather than uh, all soft songs. Yeah, brilliant. Anyone else got burning thoughts? Um, I was just going to say that sometimes I've been in church services where the song leader or worship leader will actually ask all of the ladies to sing and then ask all of the guys to sing. And it's just so great for each party to hear just that collective voice. And then when you all come back together, you're all just together singing to God. We should bring that back. In the eyes of the Lord. So therefore, we praise him. Absolutely, we are created equal, aren't we? Anybody else? Whereabouts were you? Um, I'm married and I've got two teenage boys and my worship leader. And it is something actually that my husband has brought up, that some of the songs just feel a little bit girly. And he wants battle cries and warrior stuff and things like that. And that's what my boys like. And I've been thinking about it. I think it's quite a lot of the songs that were sort of 80s and 90s that are a bit sometimes wishy-washy. I don't think it's the current stuff coming through now because 
my boys really love the stuff that's coming through. The, but it is the, like the gentleman said in the front, the, the battle cry warrior, let, let's, let's go marching and let's, we, you know, we are men and we want to stand up and fight. And, and that's what my family have said to me as a worship leader. And as a worship team, we have looked at the songs and we do regularly look at the songs. And actually most of them we have got rid of that are a bit wishy-washy. So it's, we are keeping it biblical and, and meeting, trying to meet everyone's needs. That's great, and I'll uh, yeah I'll interject here that I uh, I do think any of these gender stereotypes are actually completely bogus because I've got friends who are guys who actually would much prefer to sing um, love songs and and girls that I know that would actually prefer the warrior stuff. So I think um, people can't impose these these cookie cutters on us, can they? And I think a lot of the debate I've been listening to in the states about this doesn't really allow for people to be different. Um, there's probably men here that love reading poetry. And maybe you're married to a woman who is a, an engineer and loves reading about building bridges. You know, it's like you can't ever box people in, can you? But I think there is, a, there is a general concern that we need to make sure that our songs are biblically solid. And then I think they'll be appropriate for everyone, won't they? Because nobody wants to sing songs that are completely fluffy and insubstantial, whether we're men or women. So I think my thoughts on it really are that you can't, you can't stereotype any of these gender roles. You have to say, no, it has to be biblical and then everybody wins, don't they? And, and taste is a preference, and it's not really dependent on being male or female, but the church will grow in every way if we stick to biblical truth. I hope those things have uh, thrown some interesting questions your way. Um, ten steps to ruin your worship leading ministry. Make sure you pin those ten up on your mirror at home and you follow them, especially the one about wearing sunglasses indoors and becoming a person of great mystique. Uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed Worship Monsters. I'd encourage you to ask God to show you this week what you are afraid of in worship ministry and begin to just burst those bubbles and uh, to go back home to your church and find out what, what the people around you and your teams are afraid of and help lead them into a place of freedom. And then finally, um, the whole kind of like feminization stuff. I, I think that, that the answer to that is simply to choose biblical songs, to make sure our churches are singing songs that are rich in theology um, and that we're not, uh, you know, we're not getting wishy-washy, but that our songbooks would convey to a person who knows nothing about God an accurate picture of who our God is. Well, um, before we close, I'm just going to quickly tell you about this songbook because um, <clears throat> I've been... Uh,